So I was thinking back to all of the books I've got on church. Probably five shelves that are on church administration, church leadership, governances and bylaws. And lately I've bought a bunch of books on launching a church. This one in particular, I actually had our original launch couples read this together to talk about the steps that are in front of us. Interesting book. It's very detailed, very step-by-step, has a definite approach that they have said has succeeded with hundreds of churches all across the United States. Takes advantage of certain opportunities, certain technologies, certain cultural distinctives. And because of that, this book will be irrelevant, oh, in about 10 years. And as I read back through all my different books, some that my dad gave me, who's also a pastor, and as I read through my dad's stuff, you can tell this was before the technological and the information revolution. You can tell this was before the hippie movement. (laughs) You know, the ideas of how to, that we learn generation to generation, don't often translate forward. All the different ways that we produce and communicate to one another and organize ourselves. They change and they shift with time, with culture, with technology, and with knowledge. So if the Bible started telling us how to build the church by giving us a step-by-step that the apostles and the early followers of Jesus could implement point-by-point if it gave us an organizational model and helped us understand what committees do what, if that's the approach that scripture had taken, if it had become a manual for making disciples, it would have lasted about as long as the life cycle of the apostles and the early Christians. It would be outdated. Like many great books who had their time, it would have come and it would have gone. But this is the Word of God, and it's eternal. And as we see how He reveals His plan for us through His Word, it confirms the divine authorship. And when we turn to look at what the church is meant to be, we don't see a how-to. There are no bylaws in here. There isn't even really a clear designation of church leadership. It's why there are multiple models within the Christian church, all convinced they're applying the scriptural roles and titles of leadership appropriately. The reason why we have that variety is because the Bible's just not so clear about it. So how do we go about deciding what the church is meant to be? How can we learn from this scripture? What has it given us to help us say that's what we want to be? It's done it in a way that will translate for all time, that will work its way into every culture because what the Bible uses to communicate what the church is, the church that's built on the person and work of Jesus Christ, are metaphors, pictures, images of what the church is to be. This particular passage that we're in is packed with metaphors. So let's again turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. This whole passage is wrapped around this final statement in verse 9 that is commentated on in verse 10. He says, you are 
um, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The whole set of images we're about to look at for the next couple of weeks is built on that image of you and I as the new people of God. And Peter says, once it was not possible for you as a group to be the people of God, but now you are the people of God. And the reason is because at one time you were apart from God. Paul says we were children of wrath. We were out of fellowship with God, out of fellowship with what he was doing on planet earth. But when Christ came, a new way was opened up. And so now we are a people of God because we have all received mercy through the work of Christ. The allusion here is to the Old Testament people of God in Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. In the Old Covenant, he chose them and set them apart. And so every metaphor we're going to explore relates back to what was distinct about the people of Israel, but now is true about us as the new people of God in a more significant and a more complete way. See, in the Old Testament, it was very much about ethnicity. God chose Israel, called them out from among the nations. He set them apart and he marked them, not just through his work in their life, but he marked them through their religious practices. He marked them physically by requiring that every male be circumcised. You'll often hear that phrase talked about being circumcised, be, meaning owned by God. Very masculine kind of image in the Old Testament. Now we move to the New Testament and the people of God are also marked. How are we marked as a people of God in the New Testament? What is the de defining act physically that sets us apart as the people of God. Sorry? Okay, spiritually it's the coming and indwelling of the Holy Spirit, whereas in the Old Testament that was not true. The Holy Spirit came upon and indwelt individuals at particular times and for particular purposes. One of the unique things about being the people of God today is that we now are where the Spirit of God dwells which comes into play significantly when we look at the idea of being uh, a, a spiritual house in just a few minutes. But physically, there is an act physically that demonstrates and represents that we've been set apart to God, just as circumcision was in the Old Testament. What is it? Baptism. baptism. Sure. Baptism sets us apart now today. Now here's the beauty of baptism. Okay, in the Old Covenant, very male-oriented, right? Still caught up with the, the impact of the fall and the subservient role that is played, the competition between the sexes that is set up as a result of the fall, still very strong. In the New Testament, now we see Jesus the revolutionary, whereas women were treated as property, even in the Jewish culture of Christ's day, still second-class citizens. Today, now under Christ, women have been restored back to the role that they were intended in the garden. Now, in the New Testament, we have neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, neither slave or free. This people of the New Covenant has no distinction in relation to ethnicity, gender, or cultural standing. 
So baptism is a beautiful physical mark because it's for all people. All of us, Paul says, have been baptized into Christ. I love that thought. So the old covenant was just a foreshadowing for the finished work that God would do through Christ. And the new covenant under Christ is perfect. It is complete. It is the better. That's the new covenant. And we are the people of that covenant. It's a powerful thing that God has done as he's restored us. That's what Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old creation was perverted because of sin. Even the social structures were turned on their head. And when we come into Christ, he recreates us. We are again what we were intended to be. And the future is about God bringing all things back into restoration. Reconciling not just men and women, but reconciling, as we saw in Colossians 1, all things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth. That's the journey that we're about. I, I don't know if that's too much today. I don't know. But those ideas really excite me when I think about who we are. And it's important that you at least get that image, that you understand that what we are is what God intended to do always. We are not, as some suggest, this sort of missing parenthetic period that Scripture doesn't see. We are the fulfillment of what Christ intended to do. We are the spiritual children of Abraham. Under the new covenant, the new and living way made possible through Jesus Christ that is open to all men, women, and all social status through the baptism of the Holy Spirit symbolized by the act of obedience in baptism, a declaration of our life in Christ and our death to our old ways. All right, okay, so that, that's probably, I've, I've built on that too much. The more I try to add on it, the thicker it's getting, so let's move on talk about the, the metaphors now that grow out of that. So the first metaphor that grows out of this idea of us being the people of God. He doesn't just say a people of God. He says, once you were not a people, now you're the people of God. We're the, we're the thing that God's doing. And he refers now to four different metaphors. The first is living stones in a spiritual house. The second is a chosen people. Third, a royal priesthood. Fourth, a holy nation. All sounds very Old Covenant, right? Old Testament. But now it takes on new and living and vibrant meaning for us as the people of God. The one we're going to look at today is this first one, living stones in a spiritual house. Let's just review just quickly what we're building on. In Matthew, when Jesus says, upon this bedrock... Petros, I will build my church. He's talking about the foundation that everything's built on. Getting right down to bedrock. Can't go any deeper. It's the surest thing to build on. And the bedrock on which the church is built is the declaration of Jesus as Christ and Lord. Person and work of Jesus Christ. We come to 1 Peter and we see two different designations of Christ as stone. The first is cornerstone. Whereas in our day, a cornerstone is a symbolic plaque or a piece of granite that's set into the corner of a building at its dedication once it's already built. In Jesus' time, the cornerstone was the first stone laid. 
It was laid exactly right. And then every other stone was lined up to that cornerstone. So Jesus being the cornerstone means that everything we do is lined up to who he is and what he has done. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Christ as Lord, that's the cornerstone. Everything has to line up to that. Everything we do has to line up to that. And then later on in this passage, in verse 7, he refers to Christ with the phrase capstone. The stone that the builders rejected has also become the capstone. The capstone is the, the, the last piece on top of an ark that holds the whole ark together. So think about that. Jesus is the bedrock on which we build. Jesus is the cornerstone that we line up everything we do. And when it's all said and done, Jesus holds it all together from the top. Jesus is the whole thing. It's all Christ. And that's why he's the first living stone. Right? And our life as living stones flows from him. So let's look at this idea of living stone in a living house. And we're going to start with the phrase a spiritual house. This is a direct allusion to the Old Testament temple, which was a physical house where God dwelled. In the Old Testament, it was a fixed location. It had physical walls. God, who was always everywhere, allowed his manifest presence to be known and experienced within those four walls. And not just in those four, four walls, but a very confined space within the temple known as the Holy of Holies. And it was a fearful place for people to enter in. Once a year, a high priest would go behind that curtain. Embroidered on the curtain was cherubim. Warrior class angels. Not cherubs like we think of on Valentine's Day. Little little bows and arrows. Cherubim. They were the warrior class angels. Same one set at the outside of the Garden of Eden to keep men from returning back to that place where they walked with God. In the same way they were on the veil saying to men, you can come this far but no farther. The place beyond here is barred from you. The way has not been made. The cherubim were a symbol of that. But the high priest once a year went behind that with blood, with sacrifice. Tradition tells us the high priest wore bells around his garment so that as he moved around, if God found him unworthy to be in his presence and represent the people of God and he was struck dead, they'd know it because the bells would go silent. Tradition also tells us they tied a rope around their ankle and the gathered part was on the safe side of the curtain so that if the bells did stop ringing, they could pull them out of the Holy of Holies and not have this ever-increasing body count in the presence of a holy God. This was the temple experience. It was both joyful because this holy God chose to dwell among us. The Psalms of Ascent in the Old Testament are all about people aspiring to go to the holy mountain of Jerusalem as they did annually. Why? Because that's where we're going to encounter the living God. It was a fearful and joyful thing all at once because they knew that forgiveness was possible at least temporarily through the sacrifices. That this holy God that said, come this far but no farther, still wanted to be in and among his people and offered a way for forgiveness. But it was in Jerusalem. You had to go there. See? Paul says, for us now, we don't have to do that anymore. God's building through his new covenant 
a new house for himself. It's a spiritual house. It's not held in by walls. There's this very powerful picture that the writer of Hebrews creates when he talks about how Christ, through his work, shattered the barrier that stood between men and God that the veil in the temple represented. In fact, it says that when Christ's very body was torn, that that was the veil being torn away for us. It's why the gospel writers record that when Christ gave up his spirit on the cross, the, the temple veil that had stood for centuries as a barrier between men and a holy God was torn from the top to the bottom. Because now the blood of Christ has made it possible for us, as the writer of Hebrews says, think about this. Think about the old priest. Think about the bells around his garment. Think about the rope around his ankle and the fear that he had as he entered into the presence for century upon century. And compare that to the writer of Hebrews saying that you and I can now come boldly before the throne of grace and obtain mercy. Because a new and living way is made possible through the work of Christ, through his death on the cross. I love that picture. Paul says that you and I individually now are the very temples of God. Why? Because rather than God dwelling in a building, he dwells in our hearts. We're the very presence of God, which means that you and I, wherever we are, that's God's house. Wherever you are, you're a sacred, you're in sacred territory. Whatever you do, that's a sacred act. Because you are the temple of God. But more than that, it's not just an individual thing. Together, we are the spiritual house of God. So the image is a bit mixed. They're mixed metaphors, but they're meant to help us understand that while I personally have God's presence in my life, at the same time, I'm not meant to be on my own. I am part of a greater whole. And when we come together as the people of God, oh, God fully dwells. God is manifest presence in the community of people out of which he's building the spiritual house that is his church. No physical walls. But we are stronger together. We were made to be together. This is the important thing for us to understand. You cannot fully experience the living presence of God on your own. You were never meant to. Our connection to one another as we are connected to the cornerstone is a place where God intends to dwell and have his presence be. We're meant to be together. It's this idea of a spiritual house that makes the, us understand what it means to be living stones more fully. In the ancient creeds, we confess that we believe in one holy apostolic Catholic church. For Protestants, some of us kind of go, wait a minute, uh, we don't believe that, do we? Yes, we do. We believe in one holy apostolic Catholic Church. Now, certain groups have sort of thought that they own the corner of the market on that terminology, and so we tend to avoid it. But when our church fathers used those phrases, they were capturing the essence of the church. One, there's only one true church that Jesus builds. All who claim Christ as Savior and Lord are part of it. Holy, 
That church is set apart for God. Apostolic. That church is rooted on the gospel of Jesus Christ as passed on through the apostles and passed on to us as, as those following the path of the apostles. Catholic is universal. Universal not just geographically but time as well. So the church at all times and everywhere is comprised of those who at all times and in any place lay Christ as Savior and Lord. Catholic. Catholicity of the church, we call it. We're Catholic. We are. That's why I love being in this place. <laughs> We're reclaiming the phrase. Right? That's what it means to be a spiritual house. And you and I are living stones. Let's just quickly look at that, that picture of living stones. First of all, I love the idea that a stone is lifeless on its own. How are we living stones? Well, it's the life of Christ that brings us life. He is the true living stone, and we, like him, are living stones. Think about it. We've already talked about the fact that the cornerstone is what everything lines itself up to. But our life is found in our connection to that cornerstone, because it's the true living stone. So it's as we are connected one upon one to each other and to the cornerstone that we ourselves are life. It's our connection to Christ, but also together. Take a giant magnet and get a bunch of paper clips. And the magnet itself is the, is the force. The life is in the magnet. Pick up a paper clip, it connects to the magnet. But connect that paper clip to another paper clip and the magnet powers pass through the paper clip to the next. And if you do that enough, all the paper clips hold each other together. Remove the magnet, paper clips fall apart. The power is in the magnet. It's our connection. It's the fact that we are connected to the cornerstone that we are alive and our connectedness to each other is what allows us to transfer and experience that life-giving power. Does that make sense to you? We are the living stones. We're alive because Christ is alive in us. And our connection to one another is how that life is built up and affirmed and strengthened. We are living stones in a spiritual house because we are a custom fit. Today, if you look here, these, these are stones. These are, these are fabricated stones. They're cookie cutter stones. They're each the same. The mortar is what keeps them in uniform. Not so in the old days. In the old days, every stone was custom cut to fit right in place. And if it was done right, it, sh it shimmied up right next to the next stone and fit perfectly. Those buildings are still around in Europe and in Rome, right? Because they were built well. That's the type of spiritual house, the type of building Peter's talking about. So you and I are each a custom fit. So in this spiritual house, each of us has our place. The master builder says, I'm going to take you, I'm going to shape you this way, I'm going to fit you right here, and without you right here, this spiritual house isn't going to be built. We're all designed to make our place. So let's explore that idea just a couple ways. First of all, how does God shape the stones? 
Stone is not only dead on its own, stone is a very hard medium to work with. How do you shape stone? Rubbing, grinding. Rubbing, grinding, chipping, hammering. Sculpting. Sawing. Yeah, you know how you work stone? All those things are? You break it. You shape stone by breaking it. God needs to break us down. Sometimes that's painful, but it's always best. And even those painful experiences in our lives shape us for how God wants to use us in his body. What's a second way that's less invasive and painful by which stone is shaped? Water, wind, time. Time. So those are our choices, right? <laughs> let God do the hard work now and shape us now, or let God shape us over time through just the course of life. I think he uses both to shape us. I think is both God fitting us now for his work and yet in the long term shaping us for each new step of the way. So God fits us. He works us. There's that analogy when we talk about God shaping us that we take and we make S-H-A-P-E. What's that called? Is it acrostic? Is that the right word for it? An, an acronym? Thank you. I, I was struggling when I started this series about whether it's an analogy or a metaphor. You know, what I'm talking about here. These are metaphors. Because an analogy says it's like this. A metaphor says it is this. So, there we go. So, it's an anacronym. So, how did I say it right? No. I still didn't say it right. Acronym. Acronym. Okay. <coughs> It's an acronym. Shape. How does God shape us? S, our spiritual gifts. Holy Spirit comes in and he gifts us uniquely. A spiritual gift is an interesting thing because sometimes you don't recognize that you're doing anything. Other people see it in you and are blessed by it. Right? It just Sometimes, sometimes people have the hardest time recognizing their spiritual gift because they don't think of it as something they've worked at doing. Because it's a gifting. It's just something that God has given us uniquely to give back to him. Heart, that's H. That's about our passions. God moves in our hearts and our passions and gives us desires to do things, to touch. We're, we're, we're moved by certain situations and experiences in people's lives. And we're driven by them to what God wants. A, our abilities, our skills and our talents. Somewhat different than our spiritual gifts sometimes aligned. I like to think of our abilities as the tools we use to exercise our spiritual gift. P, your personality. Thank God for varied personality. Are you, there are times I just wish everybody in the world was like me. <laughs> just be so much easier, right? I'm sure you've all felt that. I know at least Don has felt that from time to time. But then I get alone by myself for a few days, and I'm really glad for the variety, because I get sick of myself, because God intended variety. Our personalities each allow us to see things uniquely, to bring a different set of eyes and experience and ideas and wisdom to what we do together. P is personality. E is our experiences. Romans 8 teaches us that God uses everything for good in our lives. In Scripture, God doesn't 
typically justify difficult situations in our life. He most often doesn't take credit for it, but he also doesn't defend himself when we want to say, why do you do this? That's not how God addresses hardship. The Bible essentially just accepts the fact that living in a broken world is hard. It's painful. But what it promises is God's presence, and it promises that he'll waste none of it. He'll use it all for good. And the very encouragement that we've received becomes part of the shaping for us to give encouragement and minister to others. That's how God shapes the living stones to fit into this living house that's for him and for his glory. One other thing about living stones before we turn to communion this morning, and that is the idea that um, we're a work in progress, right? There is a shaping, and yet there is a reworking, I think, that happens. Um, I, I, I think back on my own family, Vit and, and my own journey, and the things that we would have said we were called to do 30 years ago, as opposed to what we feel called to do and equipped to do right now. You know, there, there's a, you look back and you, you say, boy, God's taken new experiences. The shaping continues. New experiences, new abilities, new, new skills. Refined personalities, hopefully. <laughs> Who knows? New experiences. They all shape us for the next piece of the journey. So what that means is that, first of all, we have to submit ourselves to the master's loving work in our lives of shaping us through the painful experiences as well as the joyful ones. It means we need to gear up for the long haul because that shaping is a lifelong journey. We're a work in progress, which means that there's rough edges that we all still have. And as God puts us in place side by side in building his spiritual house, those rough edges are going to rub up against each other. the lubricant that God provides for allowing you and I, stones in the rough that God's shaping for his glory, the thing that allows us to cling to one another as we together cling to the cornerstone is grace. And it's why we're to be known by our love for one another. People look at us and go, man, what a mixed up bunch. What a what a mixed group of people. Look at them all. And how beautiful they are together. Behold how they love one another. In that they see God in us.